I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. If you need a Bible, these guys have some. And get their attention. They're going to make their way to the back. And those Bibles are marked at Acts chapter 17. So that you can follow along as we look at God's Word together. Acts chapter 17. Now in a gathering this size, there are represented a number of different opinions regarding the central event of Easter, which we all know is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Many of you believe it, and it's made a profound difference in your lives. Others are curious, and so you attend regularly or semi-regularly in order to learn more about Jesus. And still others are convinced it's all a myth. Sure, it's helpful to some people, in the same way as the placebo effect. But it's certainly not true, and it's hard to understand how anyone could think it's real. In fact, it's really quite foolish to get excited about, let alone devote your life to such a message. To be honest, I'm here today to just endure this hour because a friend or family member insisted. There are these three groups of people in this room. Some believe, others are checking into it, and still others are dismissive. And I know that because it's true in just about any gathering of any size that you have representative people in each of these categories. We saw it in the video, and you find those three in the passage to which I've asked you to turn in the Bible. In Acts chapter 17 and verse 32. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. That's one group. But then it goes on. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. That's the second group. And then verse 34 says, some of the people became followers and believed. So although I may not know you personally, I know that you're in one of those three groups. You find the Christian message to be silly and perhaps even harmful. Or you're intrigued by it and you want to know more. Or you become convinced and you're a believer. Now what drew out those three responses of sneering or mocking? Of wanting to hear more and believing from those we read about in Acts chapter 17? Well, it was the result of a message that they had just heard. And although the audience's responses varied, the message was based on things that they all had in common and that all of us have in common as well. So I invite you to look at the outline that we have on the back of your program, the program that you should have received on the way in. Take a look at that and notice that each of the three major points begins with the word everyone. That's because these are things that we all have in common. And the first of those is this. Everyone is a worshiper. Everyone is a worshiper. I say that because of what verse 16 of Acts chapter 17 says. Verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. 
So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. Now, Paul was a, a traveling missionary who would go from place to place spreading the message of Jesus. On this occasion, he found himself in Athens, Greece, the philosophical and cultural capital of the world, and he was waiting for two of his associates to join him, and then they'd move on. But while he was there, the Bible says he was distressed at what he saw. The city was full of idols. Although Adam, Athens was beautiful and it was impressive, with the Parthenon sitting atop the Acropolis and with its many temples, its renowned architecture and its artistry, rather than being like most of us would be, acting as a tourist and taking selfies among the sites, Paul was distressed. Now, I'm sure he appreciated Athens' grandeur, but his overwhelming emotion was distress. And overwhelming is actually an accurate description because the Greek word that's translated distressed, you know that your New Testament was originally written in Greek and then was translated into English. The word that's translated distressed is the word from which we get the medical term paroxysm. It's a word for a seizure. The Bible's saying that Paul internally convulsed at what he saw. This city full of idols. The reason that Athens was so religious is the same reason that people the world over and for all history have been religious. It's because, friends, we were made to be worshipers. The Bible tells us in its very first chapter that God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. We were created in God's image, that is to reflect God back to God in the way we live, but also with devotion and praise to him. The book of Psalms in your Bible says this, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name, worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. That was what we were made for in the beginning, and it's what we will do in the future. The very last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation, gives us a glimpse of what it will be like when history is done. And the Bible says this, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the glory and praise of God is the very reason that he restores us to our original design. He makes us Christians. He saves us. He transforms us. The Bible says this, in love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Now notice why, to the praise of his glorious grace. And then that chapter says as well, you were included in Christ for this purpose, to the praise of his glory. And then lastly, Romans 11 makes clear that God's purpose for all things is his own praise, his own glory. When it says from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. So we were all made to be worshipers. But we're all susceptible to idolatry. That is worshiping someone or something other than the true and living God. Now, we don't see ourselves as idolaters because our definition of idolatry is too narrow. 
But scripture presents idolatry as not only making an image and then bowing down before it. That certainly is idolatry. But it's anyone or anything that commands ultimate allegiance from us other than God. An idol is anyone or anything we value more than God in any given moment. An idol is anyone or anything that's more fundamental to you than God. For your happiness, for your meaning, for your identity. As I said in last week's message, I asked the question, what is your driving passion? And it's hard to get that just by asking because most of us will say it's our family or God or other people. But I noted that psychologist Alfred Adler says, if you really want to know what matters most to you, look at your nightmares. And I noted that even for those who, like me, don't actually remember our dreams or nightmares, we all still have things that are our worst nightmare. That is, what thing, if absent, would take away your will to live? That's your idol. And that idol is often a good thing. A good thing that's been turned into an ultimate thing. A good thing becomes a bad thing when it becomes an ultimate thing. And so I gave you the example last week that if you're engaged and you then break up, it's going to bring grief if indeed that was a good relationship. To lose it is naturally going to be hard. But if that person had become ultimate to you, if they were the reason that you got out of bed, then that good thing has become an ultimate thing and the breakup is not going to just be hard, it's going to be devastating and debilitating. You see, friends, we can make idols of anything. Anyone and anything. That's why the prophet Ezekiel said this. These people have set up idols, notice, in their hearts. John Calvin said that the human heart is a factory of idols. Because we have the capability to make an idol out of anything. And that is the fallen condition of all humanity outside of Jesus Christ. And so the Bible says this, they worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. We are by nature then religious. When you reject God, it's not that you worship nothing. It's that you find something or someone else to worship. Perhaps making God in your own image and giving your allegiance to your own creation. That's what all of us do. But we do it based upon what it is we think. So not only is everyone a worshiper, I say secondly in your outline. Everyone is a believer. Everyone is a worshiper, worshiping someone or something. But everyone is also a believer. Now, wait a minute. You said at the beginning that there are three groups and believers are just one of those three. Now you're saying we're all in that same group, that we're all believers. Well, I'm not saying that everyone is a believer in Jesus, for sure. But I'm simply saying that everyone has beliefs and beliefs about the important issues. To paraphrase G.K. Chesterton, the first effect of not believing in God is to believe in anything. The one guy in our video said the message of the cross is a waste of time. Is that guy a believer? Absolutely. That's what he believes. We would often refer to him as an unbeliever, but make no mistake, he has very definite beliefs, as all of us do. 
Even if those beliefs are the opposite of Christianity. Everyone is a believer. Because, I say in your outline, everyone is, are you ready, a philosopher? Everyone is a philosopher. And Paul encountered some formal, professional philosophers in Athens. Verse 18. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All of the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Verse 22, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and he said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and I looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Athens was known for four major schools of philosophy, all of which had been founded hundreds of years before this encounter with Paul. Each of these four had places where they would meet in the city. There was the Academy of Plato. There was the Lyceum of Aristotle, the Garden of Epicurus, and the artistically painted porch or portico of the Stoics. And those last two are mentioned in our passage, the Epicureans and the Stoics. These were contemporary, but they were rival, opposite systems. The the Epicureans considered the gods to be so remote as to take no interest in and have no influence on human affairs. The world, according to them, was due to chance, a random collection of movement of atoms, and there would be no survival after death and no judgment. So human beings should pursue pleasure especially the serene enjoyment of a life that's detached from pain, from passion, and from fear. The Stoics were named after that portico where they would meet. In fact, that word Stoic means that, porch or portico. And they believed the world was determined by fate, and human beings must just pursue their duty, resigning themselves to live in harmony with reason, however painful it might be, and they must develop their own self-sufficiency. So to oversimplify, it was characteristic of the Epicureans to emphasize chance, to emphasize escape and the enjoyment of pleasure, and for the Stoics to emphasize fatalism, submission and the endurance of pain. All right, now that I've given you that, you say, so who cares about the Epicureans and the Stoics? I'm not either, and I couldn't care less. Well, not so fast. Philosophy means the love of wisdom. That's what the word means. And even if you don't love it, all of us by nature participate in it. Although the average person is not familiar with the origin of such phrases like eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, or you only go around once, but please understand these are the modern version of Epicureanism. Or consider the Stuff happens. Approach to life. 
And many take that approach, and it's nothing more than the current version of Stoicism. We all have a philosophy, even if it does not have a formal name, or you've not articulated it, or even consciously thought about it. And if you do not control and shape your philosophy, it will not stop you from forming one. It'll just simply be a very poor one. At the very minimum, friends, we all live according to what we believe to be true about the big questions. What's the nature of the world, reality? Is there a world beyond this material world? We all have beliefs about that. We all have beliefs about the big questions like, how can I know what is true? And how should I conduct my life? The one guy in our video said the message of the cross is a waste of time. As I noted, that's what he believes. And you believe some things like him that may preclude the cross, Jesus, the resurrection, from being part of your system of belief. For example, maybe you don't believe miracles are possible. Well, I would just say to you, if you don't believe miracles are possible, then your only alternative is atheism. Because if there is indeed a supernatural being, then doing supernatural things is quite natural for him. What both of these philosophical schools, the Epicureans and the Stoics, had in common was the idea that the body was not ultimately important. In Greek philosophy, the body was thought to be what they called the prison house of the soul, and the soul awaited liberation from it. And that's why elsewhere in your New Testament, you find many opponents of the Christian message denying that God had come in the flesh, that God had taken a body because the body was thought to be evil, so that couldn't happen. And these Greek philosophers' beliefs about the body precluded the idea of a bodily resurrection since the body was the very thing that you need to escape, according to them. And this is why they were so clueless when Paul spoke to them about the resurrection just didn't add up for them, just like for some of you, what we've done already today and what I'm saying just doesn't compute. It didn't fit into their worldview, and so they ridiculed Paul. Verse 18, they called him a a babbler. That word means literally a seed picker. It was used of birds picking seed and just getting a snatch here and there. It was later used derisively of those who couldn't put a full system together, just grabbing a thought here and there. None of it made sense to them. And some of them, according to our passage, mistakenly thought he was talking about two new gods. You seem to be advocating foreign gods because he spoke about Jesus and the resurrection. They thought he was advocating one male god named Jesus and a female god named resurrection, or in Greek, Anastasia, Anastasia. You're bringing us just two more gods we don't need anymore. We've got plenty. So finally, they took him to a meeting of the city fathers who adjudicated in religious and philosophical matters so that Paul's teaching could be evaluated. And as Paul talked to them, he made it clear that in order to know what's true, rather than just speculate and have as many claims to truth as there are people, hear this, we are dependent on God to make it known to us. And thankfully, that's what he has done in giving us his word. And that's what Paul was doing when he said in verse 23 of our passage. You are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to now proclaim to you. We all have beliefs about ultimate things. We are all philosophers. But in order to know if we have the right philosophy, 
God is going to have to make known to us truth. Otherwise, we wind up just like those in Athens. And that's why the Bible warns, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. Everyone is a believer. We're all philosophers, and I say in your outline as well. Everyone is also a theologian. A theologian. Theology is the study of God. And so when I say everyone is a theologian, I am saying that everyone has some knowledge of God and everyone interacts with God willingly or not. You were made by God and for God, and therefore we all know that he exists even if we don't like him. Have you ever noticed that most denials of God attack his character? They say things like, why would God allow this or that? Why would God do this or that? In other words, their claim is really there is no God and I hate him. How do you hate someone who doesn't exist? The Bible tells us this in Romans chapter 1. Although they knew God. And in Greek, it says, although they knew literally the God, not just some vague notion about God, they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks. And the passage goes on to say, what may be known about God is plain because God has made it plain. How? For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. And that's why the message then that Paul gave to those philosophers in Athens, Greece, assumed that they knew this. They knew there was a God who had created them. And that's why he says in verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he does not live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Their culpability for failure to believe in God is seen in the fact that their own poets have to admit that God is the creator, and yet they've sought to make him into their own image, into someone they can control who's dependent on us rather than us being dependent on him. They believe in him, as all people ultimately do, but they deny essential things about him because it fits better with what they want to believe. Everyone is a believer. A study published in a scientific journal just last month found that professing atheists, hear this, believe in extraterrestrial intelligence more than other groups. And the article said the reason is this, quote, part of the reason religion gives life meaning is it helps us feel connected to something bigger and more enduring, that we are not here by chance. Extraterrestrial beliefs do not typically contain a traditional belief in a creator, but they do suggest that we're not alone in the universe. Even the atheist is groping for something because we are all believers. Everyone 
is a worshiper. Everyone is a believer. And I say, lastly, everyone is accountable. Everyone's a worshiper. Everyone's a believer. And everyone is accountable. Verse 29. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone. By raising him from the dead. And when it says there he overlooked, it doesn't mean that God indulged or ignored the ignorance of people. We've already seen that people are without excuse for rejecting what they already know about God. It means rather that God took no notice of ignorance as it were. Instead of tending to it, he looked the other way and he let it be. In fact, here's what this same Paul said in another passage in your Bible. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. He let them go their own way. In other words, the times of ignorance that God overlooked in the sense that he allowed them to walk in their own ignorant ways is what's being spoken of here. He didn't execute immediate judgment, nor did he give revelation about Christ. He let them go their own way. But the resurrection, now hear this, the resurrection now shows that among all the rivals out there who would bid for your allegiance, Jesus Christ is the one with whom we all must reckon. And it's his resurrection that has given proof of that. When it says here that he has proven this by his resurrection, he's not saying he gave proof. Paul didn't give proof of the resurrection. He said the resurrection is proof that Jesus is the one. And now everyone must reckon with him. And Jesus' resurrection means different things to different people depending on how you respond to it. To the scoffer, to the unbeliever, it means judgment. But for the believer, it means salvation. Because his resurrection proves the sufficiency of his death. Romans chapter 4 says this. He was delivered over to death for our sins. And he was raised to life for our justification. You see, when he was raised to life, it was the father's approval of his entire life and death on our behalf. And because of his resurrection, if you believe in him now, you have the benefits of his death and his life applied to you personally. But for the unbeliever, it means he's the one before whom you will stand in judgment. Now you see, friends, at Athens there were not really three groups, but only two. Just like there are here. Just like there are everywhere. Those who believed and those who didn't. There are three categories, but two of those three categories still fall under the unbelieving group. Some mocked. And others weren't sure, but what those two groups have in common is they still did not believe. Today, you can move from the unbelieving group to the believing. There are many extra biblical reasons to believe the resurrection is an historical event. It actually happened and therefore proves that Jesus is the one with whom we all must reckon. I'll just give you one. One proof of that. The fact that today 
we celebrate on the Christian Holy Day Sunday rather than Saturday. Have you ever considered that? That for hundreds of years, God's people worshipped on the seventh day. And then suddenly, 2,000 years ago, the day of worship changed from the seventh day of the week to the first day of the week. And it's been that way for 2,000 years. You know why? Because that's the day Jesus rose from the grave. But most important, God declares his truth and he commands all humanity everywhere now to repent. To repent before the one with whom we must all reckon and who has given proof of that fact by his resurrection. The date today is April 16, 2017, 2017 years from the birth of Jesus. Emperors and governors were men with power in Christ today, but now their bodies rot in their graves and their souls await the final judgment. They have no followers to this day. No one worships them. No one serves them or awaits their bidding, but not the case with Jesus. Napoleon, who was well accustomed to political power, said it would be amazing if a Roman emperor could rule from the grave. And yet he said, this is what Jesus is doing. Now, the truth is, Jesus is not ruling from the grave. He's alive. But Napoleon said this, I search in vain in history to find the similar to Jesus Christ or anything which can approach the gospel. Nations pass away, thrones crumble, but the church remains. And all of this because of the solitary life of this one who was God in the flesh and is now appointed as the ruler and ultimate judge of all people. He is the one proven by his resurrection, with whom we all must reckon. So friends, we're going to close in just a moment. But please understand that your idolatry, my idolatry, your sin, my sin, will either be judged in the person of Jesus on the cross, or it will be judged by you personally standing before God and giving an account. Thanks be to God. God rendered his judgment on our sin by pouring it out on Jesus on the cross. And he offers you opportunity then to repent, to change your mind, and then lead to a new direction. That's what repent means. Change your mind now about what you believe about the true and living God and about the necessity of your allegiance to him and his love poured out for you on the cross in Jesus. Repent of your idols that replace the worship of God, whatever they may be, that keep you from worshiping God. Just before Paul came to Athens, he had visited another Greek city, Thessalonica, and he said this, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's what all of us must do. And you must repent of your false beliefs that replace the truth about Christ. Jesus said this when he walked the earth. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. We must repent of the idols that replace the worship of God, our false beliefs that replace the truth about Christ and our rebellion that keeps us from wanting to obey Christ. Because the Bible says this, because God the Father approved of his entire life and death and raised him, the Bible says this, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father.
Your take-home truth is this. What we believe about Jesus determines our course not only in this life, but the next. We're going to bow in prayer. As we do, I encourage you from your heart to God in your own words to thank God that he has given you this truth about himself. That he has told you and proven to you through his resurrection that he is the one with whom we all must reckon and repent of your sin, repent of your idolatry as I had to do at age 19. And say, Lord, I've sinned in so many ways, but I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sin. And you see up on the screen there. Recognize, realize that you're a sinner. Recognize Christ died for your sin. Repent. That is, God, I'm going to go your way, not my way and receive Jesus Christ into your life. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank you for this blessed day to consider especially the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, you know the hearts of every person that's in this room. You know, Lord, the tendency and the temptation for our hearts to be drawn away from you to other and by definition lesser persons and things. And so, Lord, we all have our own forms of idolatry, but Jesus died for all of that. And he covered all of that. And he has proven the efficacy of what he did on the cross by being raised from the dead. He's going to come again. And you have appointed him the judge of all humanity. Oh, Lord, thank you for judging my sin and our sin in Jesus on the cross. I pray that there are people right now who are turning to him. Who are humbly recognizing that they have rejected him in their minds. That they've rejected him in their their actions. They've rejected him psychologically because they can't believe some of the things that you allow to happen. But, Lord, you are God. And you have made us in your image and not the reverse. So I ask you to call your people out to yourself in this sacred moment. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.